Lisa Alexander, as I live and breathe. I suggest you remove your hand, Ambassador, or you won't be doing either for much longer. I'm not with the Corps anymore. That means I'm not bound by their rules. So if someone were to turn me in, I'd find him. And before they took me, I'd plant a nightmare deep in his mind where no one else could find or remove it. And that person would spend every night for the rest of his life screaming. On the night before our Lord was crucified, he spent the night alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knew that they were going to come for him. And in a moment of weakness, he asked if this cup could pass from him. If he could be spared the pain and death that would come with the morning. And of course the cup would not pass and the soldiers would come to Gethsemane. But he did not have to be there when they arrived. He could have chosen to leave, to postpone the inevitable for a few hours or even days. He knew what would happen, but he chose to stay, to sacrifice himself and thus atone for the sins of others. Very fragile human moment. I always wanted to know if I would have the courage to stay at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now I know. A holy man without a past, they erased his memory, is about to discover his true identity. Brother Edward was the Black Rose Killer. Someone wants him to remember. On an all-new Babylon 5. You have transmissions holding. Patch incoming signal. Full audio and video decode. Purple files accessed. What you are about to see has never been shown to anyone outside the break house. Out there in podcast land, welcome to Grace 17, a Babylon 5 podcast, a part of the Front Row Network and NPR Illinois Community Voices. We are a group of first ones who have watched every episode of Babylon 5 far too much and some newbies who are watching for the very first time. And we are here to discuss passing through Gethsemane. I am Scott and with me is Emily, Blake, Justin, Kevin, Jesse, Mike, and Nicole. Before we get started talking about the episode, a reminder to please check out all our social medias. We have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, you can find our YouTube channel linked below. And if you're listening or watching on YouTube, you can find the audio podcast linked below. We also have some merch linked below. And finally, we do have our Patreon, which allows you to access our Discord server and thank you very much to our Gray Council members, our producers who are listed down below who give the highest amount on Patreon every single month. We really do appreciate it. And a reminder to please help us out and give a review specifically on Apple. You can also review on Audible. You can do some stars on Spotify and so many other places. But really, if you can do us a, a solid, Apple is the key resource to leave your review for because that is what's going to help 
more people see the podcast each and every week. And we continue to grow this sucker, and it's because of the help that you're giving us through those reviews. So thank you very much. And of course, if you haven't subscribed or haven't hit that like button and notify button, please do so as well. So let's go ahead and start talking about Passing Through Gethsemane, which I did not bury the lead last week, is one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. So I'm looking forward to finding out if I'm alone or not in that feeling. So Kevin, let's get a synopsis going. Kasha's ship arrives at the station bearing a surprise visitor. Lita Alexander returns after visiting the Vorlon homeworld. Brother Edward, a monk with Brother Theo, visits with Delenn to discuss religion. Soon, he begins to hear voices. They discover that Edward is experiencing repressed memories. Someone is forcing him to relive past moments. Dun, dun, dun. We'll go into first impressions from our newbies first, and let's go to Nicole first. First impressions. Man, this episode was intense. Um, I'm not going to lie. The end of it made me cry. There was a lot of moments in this episode where I thought were really powerful. Uh, like the story that Edward tells Delenn about the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane. We're Thank all going to pronounce it wrong. Yeah. Don't worry. I went to Catholic school. I should know how to say this, but I don't. I specifically wrote that down and I thought that was really powerful. Um, I thought there was a lot of uh, moments in here that were really good. Um, you know, I thought that the whole Lita Kosh thing was interesting. I have a lot of questions and thoughts about what happened with them at the end there um, about Lita and Kosh. So that was kind of cool. I enjoyed um, Lita being a renegade telepath and basically kicking that Centauri's ass mentally. Um, so that was cool. Um, but yeah, the the whole storyline with Edward and all that, I thought they were going to go down the Black Dahlia train, but why, why are you looking at me like that? Did you say the Centauri was picking his ass? <laughs> No, he she kicked his ass like mentally. Kevin heard the same ass. fucking thing. I heard you picking. said kicking his ass. No, I mentally. said kicking his ass mentally. Kicking, kicking. She basically came in and kicked his ass mentally, and it was awesome. So now I lost my train of thought. Anyway, I thought they were going to go down a Black Dahlia type thing because you know we already had Jack the Ripper, and I was like, don't do this Black Dahlia thing. But it was it was different. So, um, but yeah, that was a a pretty pretty good episode. Um. I have a lot of comments and thoughts. Uh, finally saw Zach Allen again. That was cool. Yeah, I thought overall it was a really good episode. It was really emotional and it kind of tugged at my heartstrings a little bit. Centauri was picking his I ass. didn't say that. That's stupid internet. <laughs> it was perfect. And again, wasn't just fucking me who heard it. Okay, Jesse, first impressions. I'm eating. <laughs> um, Would you like me to go to Emily first? <laughs> no, it's fine. This whole episode really brought some... Um, previous conversations to the forefront because we've talked about um erasing the memory before and like some of us didn't think that that was um punishment enough for somebody that's killed nine people and then we see a whole episode about it so it was it was a great episode i really enjoyed it um a lot of things happened um a lot of different a lot of different levels of things so i enjoyed i enjoyed the episode for the most part Emily, first impressions. Um, I spent a lot of the episode thinking, what the fuck? Um, just because there was so much going on and some of it was quite strange, specifically the gills on Lita's neck, which creeping me out, still really disturbed by those. I am glad that they addressed the loss of personality 
um, issue and using that as a punishment because we did have a lot of questions about how effective that would really be. And can you truly wipe all that away from like wipe all that out of someone's brain? So overall, I really liked it. Just really screwy episode. And Justin, first impressions. I mean, I loved it. I'm not, of course, I can't say if it's one of my favorites yet, but um, I did really enjoy the episode. Very powerful and moving with the story of Brother Edward. I, I like the fact that they're bringing them in more. I like the brothers. I like Brother Theo, although I'm not has necessarily as trusting of Brother Theo, I think, after this episode as I was before. Uh, Lita was a boss bitch. I loved it. I really enjoyed seeing her come back, and I really loved learning more about the about the Minbari uh, religion and how that works. Um, and then I wrote down what the fuck was up with that last scene. So I can't wait to get to that part. But overall, yeah, really enjoyed it. Can't wait for the ensuing discussion. And now we'll go over to those who have watched the entire show at least once or 20 times. Mike. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. I think this might be a controversial opinion, but I think hands down, it's it's kind of a bottle episode to a large extent, but I think it's one of the best crafted pieces of writing in this series. I think the whole premise of the and, and, and controversy surrounding, you know, basically the alternative to the to capital punishment or the new form of capital punishment is, is very compelling. It's very interesting to think about. And, and, and I love how they explore it in this episode through the character of brother Edward and uh, what an actor to play brother Edward. Brad Dorif is incredible. I mean, old <laughs> Grima worm tongue himself. Uh, absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I, I, I do really like this episode, even though it, it kind of leaves behind a lot of the larger story in my mind. Kevin, this is also a, a favorite episode of mine now it didn't used to be but after you know really spending quite a bit of time you know uh pondering the very thoughtful writing that this goes into both on the nature versus nurture and on uh the religious aspects and certainly the mimbari um religious uh doctrine that's part of this episode and brad dorif being in this episode first time i remember seeing him that i can recall was it was in voyager which say what you will about voyager but those are two very good episodes of voyager and um you know his involvement in lord of the rings and he has 172 imdb credits so he's been around quite a bit he's still active been active since 1975 so he's been around a long time um and of course lewis Turin being you know brother theo brings it in this episode too this is really a, a very thought-provoking episode that i have a new appreciation for that i probably would have skipped in uh previous uh watch throughs that i probably would not do that now blake so this is probably hands down one of my favorite in the series also it's the writing in it it's the story and the way they JMS weaves it all together and it is largely a bottle episode, but there are these little nuggets in it of things that pop up here and there. And overall, listen to this, and we've talked about his biography before, and I'm sure we'll get into some of his comments and views on the episode, and especially someone who's an avowed atheist writing a story like this in these characters. Um, 
you know, I will say, and Scott, I'm sure you've got it queued up too, but to think that A, this story almost didn't get made and that it was originally planned for over a year earlier in the series, I actually think it benefited waiting. It's better now than I think it would have been had it been done the original timeline. Yeah, since Blake, you brought that up, I'll go ahead and just throw it out there now. JMS has had a long-standing rule on his social medias: do not give him any story ideas, because he is very—I um, I wouldn't say afraid—he's concerned that it could become litigation. And so, basically, he has a rule that if you give him a story idea, even if it's a story idea that he has been working on, he will shelve it because he does not want to get sued. And this exactly happened in the Usenets uh, after. The episode that Jesse alluded to, which was Quality of Mercy, where we first deal with mind wipes, somebody on the Usenet said, hey, wouldn't it be a great story if somebody finds out that they were mind wiped and having to deal with that? And immediately JMS shut down the script and said, okay, I can't do this now because somebody threw it out on the internet. And that was for season two, like Blake had mentioned. It actually got to a point where JMS was done because as we've all seen, JMS can be kind of a curmudgeon. So he was done with the story. He's like, I'm just not going to do it. The guy who uh, went ahead and gave the story idea without realizing what they were doing actually sent JMS a notarized letter saying, I will not sue you if you use this idea. And that's when finally JMS said, okay, we'll go ahead and move forward with it for season three. But I agree with Blake that it definitely is one of those where I think it fits much better here. And also, to be perfectly honest, JMS has gotten better at its craft uh, in three seasons of the show. So I think it absolutely is a good point there. Blake, did you have anything else for impressions? No, I think that covers it for impressions. Just overall, great story. And the other piece on this I'll add on impressions, the director of this one. Yep. Adam Nimoy as a director of someone, when he gets a script, I mean, he wants to understand it. He wants to know all about it and get the tone of it, get it right. And I think he was absolutely the perfect choice for director on this one also. And yes, for those Star Trek people out there, that is the same Adam Nimoy. It is the son of Leonard. So he's the director of this episode. For me, my first impressions, you guys hit on most of it, and I'll just kind of uh, continue that conversation with you all in a second. But JMS is unabashed Twilight Zone fan, and so am I. Twilight Zone is probably my favorite classic TV show of all time, if not my favorite TV show of all time. And this is a Twilight Zone episode, hands down. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you all about it. So let's go ahead and start talking about passing through Gethsemane. Who wants to start? Emily. So did anyone else when Lita first arrived think that's something's wrong with Lita? Like she's off. That's absolutely not the Lita we know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is that, Emily? I That's the funny thing. I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was just something about like her overall general attitude that seemed off and going through the episode, um, like when Dr. Franklin was examining her and he's like, "Mm, why is your health better if you were near death? And she was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, how would she not know she had these health issues if Dr. Franklin knew? And they'd probably like someone has told her before. It just all seemed very suspicious so yeah anyone else think there's a second Vorlon coming to b5 and using uh Lita as an encounter suit basically just you got that tinfoil hat now justin's <laughs> got his hand raised so he's thinking the same thing so maybe he can't give you the tinfoil hat nicole what do you got so yeah i was gonna also 
to bring up the whole uh, Lita Kosh thing. I figured we'd start with that because there's a lot to unpack with the Edward story. Sure. Um, but first, when she when she came on, I thought, OK, she's had some work done, like not like plastic surgery, but like something was done to her. Like when she went to the Vorlon place, they altered her somehow. You know what I mean? And then she totally became like renegade telepath, came in there, did that thing with the Centauri, which was kind of badass, I got to say. And then at the end, when her and Kosh were having that energy exchange and the gills formed on her neck, at first I'm like, wait, are those fucking gills? And I'm like, oh, shit, those are gills. So I'm wondering, like, if there's some sort of amphibian tie to the Vorlons here. But also they clearly are are because like if, when Franklin said that her chronic issues were healed, like they clearly like had some sort of healing power or they did something to fix her body and like fix her issues. And, and she's now at like peak health, you know? Um, And then when she was like, Oh, well, if they come for me, the Vorlons will protect me. And like, you know what I mean? So I don't know if she's going to be a Vorlon in an encounter suit, but I definitely think she's maybe a pet or like something like there's, a reason why she was chosen and there's clearly something going on with her and Kosh with those energy exchanges and she's not fully just human anymore there's there's no doubt about that so yeah that was that whole thing was fucking wild real quick with the gills nicole we haven't dealt with it much in uh, a few episodes but remember alien sector has different air that's why we used to see a lot more in season one they would stick that breathing mask on so the gills aren't really an amphibian thing it's she can now breathe an alien sector oh got it yes she's been augmented to be able to breathe without a mask yeah augmented that's a great word she's been altered or augmented definitely Justin. I mean, regarding Lita I used uh probably I think I used the word clone I think a dozen times uh within my note taking And that's honestly where I'm kind of leaning towards like the way even her coming off the ship she wasn't walking she was more kind of floating was the first thing that I noticed from the very beginning but then yeah just the way that she acted she acted like Lita in some parts but overall like she even even like the Centauri guy wasn't the only person that she got shitty with she got shitty with Londo coming off the elevator where you know he was like hey I thought we were friends what's up and she almost acted like she didn't know him and then finally, when he started to push her for information, she snapped at him by basically threatening to in one, one actually exchange I loved out of this scene was when she threatened to just dump nightmares into his brain to where he'll be screaming every night for the rest of his life. And he goes, oh, nightmares like that's anything new for me or something like that or the way my life is going. Who's going to notice? But I, I did kind of appreciate that exchange. But. I mean, there, there's something definitely different about her. If she's not a clone, then I agree with Nicole. She's definitely augmented or she's been changed by some way. Because um, at, at first when um, at first when Franklin was examining her in the med bay, I first was wondering, well, then what does the Vorlon homeworld, is the Vorlon homeworld something of like a Garden of Eden where it just kind of healed all of her and then, of course, that started me going down the rabbit hole is, well, are the warlocks the basis of the Garden of Eden in the Bible and everything like that? But <laughs> um, yeah, it's oh, yeah, I went down a rabbit hole during some, <clears throat> some of this episode. But I, I really think that she's I don't know, just just cloning just sticks out to me. If Lita is alive, this isn't the Lita that we know. I really don't think. But it's yeah, that whole exchange where at the end where she was breathing with the gills and just the energy transfer is 
makes me really wonder if she's a vessel more than anything else. Almost like what Nicole was saying about uh, about an encounter suit. If she is recharging, if if she's recharging him, I don't know. But it, that was just a really really weird thing with the whole thing with the episode, and then that scene at the end. Just I was just writing WTF all over all my notes during that scene. So craziness. We talk about this almost every episode Londo's in now, where you guys are like, "Oh, it's Londo." Hey. Why would you pretend Londo is, you don't know Londo between the time she saw him last time. And now he's killed a million Narn. I wouldn't want to talk yeah. to that guy either. Well, yeah, He got about, everything he deserved. Yeah. He also put his hands on her and she didn't like that. Well, and the thing about that exchange is he makes it pretty clear, you, you know, in his kind of his manner during it is I'm only being friendly because I want something from you. And then when you're not going to give it to you willingly, then I'm going to threaten the shit out of mm-hmm. you. And, and oh, wait, yeah. you're threatening me now. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, you. All right. Never mind. Bye. Do we all remember the last time a smarmy ambassador gave Lita an ultimatum? It was in the mm. gathering and Jakar wanted to breed her. So <sighs> she's dealt with this before. I would be tired of it too. Jesse, what do you got? So if Lita's still alive, the actress that plays. Yeah, Pat Tallman is absolutely still alive. And so on a, scale of, on a scale of one to 10, is there a chance that we will ever um, interview her? Uh, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, 12, because okay, I've already been so working on it. I'm just going to lead with how I have done everybody else. You're going to piss her point. off before uh, we interview her. I just, I don't like the character, and she seems odd. She just seems different. And I it, like, her eyes are super dark. For some reason, I don't remember that in The Gathering. I know I mentioned this the last time we saw her. Yeah, and I just... I don't know. I something about her character. She just it seems off, and I'm not I'm not a huge fan. She's a great actress. Let me lead with that, so she doesn't actually punch me in my face. But um, I'm just not a huge fan of her character right funny now. St- maybe maybe that'll change. I don't know. Funny story when she's not acting, she's a stunt double, so she literally could punch you in the face. Oh, I know she could. She definitely take me. You can tell. <laughs> but you know, it might be a good fight. I don't know, Mike. <laughs> I'm just over here laughing because you guys are like, this isn't the Lita that we know. Like, Lita's been in like two episodes. Like, what are you talking about? She seems off. I don't remember her that much from <laughs> The Gathering. And I don't, I just don't like I, the character. Like, I, and- I, I, I definitely, I definitely will, will submit that I, from the little bit that we have seen her so far, she comes off different this time. She comes off much more confident. I, I will say and recognize that if Justin's right, it's not the first time I've gaslit him. So read it right. as you will. But going to Mike's point, we've seen her twice. We saw her in the gathering, which no one's character was actually fleshed out really in the gathering. It's a pilot. And the other time we saw her, she was running for her life and knew somebody was gunning for her on command staff. And it turned out to be Talia. So this is the first time we've seen Lita being able to actually take a breath and being able to take a moment to maybe be herself and she's been touched by a vorlon several times supposedly <laughs> well now she works for the vorlons and they're pretty much untouchable so you can kind of see where maybe some of that confidence might come from but or maybe she is a vorlon maybe the vorlons are leader <laughs> maybe they bred with her like jacquard wanted to <laughs> jacquard's jealous damn it i wanted that one anything else on the leader kosh angle at all maybe we're all lita wow Did, I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna be here for halloween didn't it sound like kosh was slightly different in this episode to anybody i 
I'm not convinced they're always the same Vorlon, so we got that. He just seemed different. Like his speech sounded different. He had a he had he had a lower voice. He had a yeah. lo- it was like, it was almost like a lower octave than what he usually does. And I've said this before, and I'll just continue to say it for folks who join on the show and maybe haven't li- or listened to other episodes. For the past almost season now, JMS is directing all of Kosh's voice acting. So he is the one telling the actor playing Kosh, you need an inflection here. You need to make your voice lower here. So JMS is very much everything that Kosh does is because JMS wants it to be done exactly that way. So just keep that in mind every time you hear Kosh. Emily? I did notice that when Kosh's ship was like arriving, the music seemed a lot darker. Like the tone and the music changed quite a bit as they were changing into that scene. Lita's neck was frequently covered, so I don't know if she's trying to hide those gills. Like, her jacket was higher up in many of the scenes, and um, when she returned and Ivanova had cleared, like, the entire area so she could come through, which I have questions about why did everyone need to be gone from there when she was arriving? Um, She had that same jacket on that was covering her neck. So... Well, remember, too, Bay 13, where Kosh's ship always goes, is usually not messed around with. Remember we had that episode where Sheridan and Ivanova checked out the ship? It was one of the first episodes Sheridan was on. And Ivanova says, if you get too close to that ship, it pulls weapons on you. And we saw that. So Bay 13, I think, is usually cleared out. It looked like when she was exiting, when there would normally be people around trying to go to other ships, it looked like the whole area had been cleared. Yeah, but I think for Bay 13, it's always clear. I don't think we've ever seen Bay 13 have people. Well, I think what she's talking about is the... Bay 13 into the main... Oh, I see what you're saying. Into the main, yeah, thoroughfare. I got you. And she even says, thank you for clearing this for me. Got you. you. Thank you. Understood. Jesse? Tasha's voice creeps me out. Because (laughs) when he talks, you hear like other people, kids. I don't know what it is. It sounds like a bunch of voices and it's, it's creepy. It has been creepy since the first time I heard it. And it continues to, to creep me out every time I hear it. Cause it sounds like as soon as he, like, I, I liken it to like hitting a button on the radio that you're going to talk into. And as soon as he hits that button, you can hear all the other voices in the background and it, it, it creeps me out a little bit. Justin. Yeah, I didn't notice any difference with, and I wasn't, I guess, paying attention to his speech patterns. I honestly just, because I know that more than one actor has done the voice, I think, during the show, and I just attributed it to another actor. I honestly didn't pay close enough attention. Shame on me. It's Ardwight Chamberlain does the voice of Kosh. For the whole time? Because I thought it was, I thought it changed Pretty actors sure. at one point. But, no, but it's as, as Scott pointed out, you know, he he does change slightly you know, based on, you know, JMS, you know, wishing for that change uh, to be a certain way. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I had never picked up on before is that if you watch that scene again, you'll hear a harp in the background, which may go with the wings, maybe. I don't know. Touched by Vorlon. Yeah, but the, it's the same voice. Kevin's right. I, I heard the very same thing. I, I, as I mentioned, it's it's a it's a lower. I, I'm not a music guy, so maybe I'm using this term incorrectly. But it's it's a lower octave this episode. But it's the same actor, and it has been the same actor the whole time. Justin, was I the only one that noticed he was never actually on the ship to begin with? I thought that was because weird too. When the ship pulled in, when the ship pulled in, Ivanova's standing there, and then he approaches her from behind. 
So yeah, I don't I think he was ever was actually on the ship when it when it came in. So like I said, the 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 ships are essentially almost sentient living creatures. So it's very possible he just sent it out to go get Lita and bring her back, and he well, never even left the station. Well, and Lita even addresses that. She said, "Well, I'm going to be leaving for you know I'm not going to be here a lot. I'm going to be doing errands for for Kosh and then coming back." So she even talks about that. Well, yeah, you're right. The other thing, too, is remember, every time we've seen Kosh come out of his encounter suit up until this point, you actually see the head of the encounter suit lift up, and that's how it opens. But this time, you saw the the head of the encounter suit on a table. So I'm not going to say any more than that, but this is a different way we've seen Kosh than any other time. Like the time his head popped up like a Pez dispenser. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, how many Pez dispensers are in your house now? Thousands thousands really? <laughs> his wife collects them anything else on lita and kosh okay let's move into the bulk of the episode which is brother edward and the discussion of his past and how he arrives to his end who wants to start nicole so um at the very you know beginning of the episode and, and throughout i liked him but i knew something bad was going to happen to him just because he was kind of like the featured monk if that makes sense I really liked the discussion he had with Delenn, uh, the story he told about the garden and about how he didn't think he'd be brave enough to stay. And, uh, you know, growing up with a Catholic background, I've heard that story a billion times. So it was kind of interesting to hear it on a show written by an atheist. So I thought that was kind of funny um, irony there. Um, but I really liked the way that the story kind of like started and and just kind of how everything unfolded, um, how he thought he was crazy and he like nobody saw what he saw and he thought it was in his head. But, you know, when they realized that it actually wasn't, it was actually being induced by somebody else. I thought that was kind of crazy. I knew that that Centauri who bumped him, I knew that he had something to do with it. I just had a gut feeling. I was like, why would this random guy be down there and bump into him and like, act like he did something wrong, you know? Um, And just the whole, dynamic and um at the end when he was kind of you know he realized who he was he told brother theo he couldn't go on and he was kind of praying and waiting for them when that gaggle came to like basically execute him that whole like that was rough and then when they found him like hanging on that iron thing clearly they tortured him and did you know all sorts of stuff to him and you know just the the almost like guttural reaction of like Sheridan and Garibaldi and like everybody and Theo. And it was just very uh, thought provoking and very emotion provoking for me, at least Um, this is just kind of how I interpreted it. And then, you know, when they pulled him down and stuff and, and they caught the guy, Sheridan's reaction to him was like, he was ready to rip this guy to shreds. And then I also thought it was super ironic how at the end, brother Theo he obviously got mind wiped and then brother Theo requested him and basically is going to make him work the rest of his life. And Sheridan was ready to rip the guy apart, but the guy had no idea. So that was just the whole thing was so much irony. But when, when he was dying and like, they were like the brother Theo was like praying with him and stuff like that really kind of like got me emotionally. Like that was, that was like sad. I don't know. Like, yeah. Okay. He was a killer, but like, you know, he got his mind wiped and he had spent time. It was, it was like, I don't want to like him because he was a bad guy before, but like, I also felt compassion for him because he wasn't that person anymore. And he was like dedicated his life to helping people. So there was a lot of up and down turmoil and emotion in this one. So it was 
very, very intense and it was a roller coaster. And I thought it was done really well. Um, there was a couple of what the fuck moments, but also like at the end, it all kind of made sense. And I just thought it was like almost like a uh, kind of a getting that guy to join the order. I was just like, oh, God, why would you want him? But then when Brother Theo tells Sheridan, remember, we were talking about forgiveness. And I was like, man, don't forgive that motherfucker. <laughs> I was mad at him. So, yeah. Anyway, I've talked too long. I'm sorry. But it's just a, I have a lot to say about that whole story. I want to point out when I asked if somebody had the plot synopsis, Nicole didn't volunteer. Kevin did it, but Nicole just gave us the plot synopsis. So. Well, I did the last one, so I figured people might be sick of me. I talk Blake, a lot. I don't want people to get sick. I'm just giving you shit, Blake. So, and Nicole, you bring up this whole notion of this episode really gets into theories of faith and forgiveness. And keeping in mind, this is an episode written by an avowed atheist. You know, he wrote this episode with these very religious, I mean, theologians can debate these topics ad nauseum. And here's this atheist writing this. Um, he even, that last scene with uh, Brother Theo giving the last rites to Edward, you know, he reached out to the Catholic Church and got a copy of that and used it to modify what he wrote in this. But as Scott and I, who have read his biography, this is a guy who has lost people through his life, through in his family. Um, has been surrounded by death and darkness in areas of his life. And he flat out says that he is not able to forgive, that he is closer to Jakar with the sliced open hand, with the drops of blood going dead, dead, dead. And he says that's who he is. So for him to write these characters that are who he isn't is part of the appeal and the fun he gets to have as a writer. And I think it shows in this whole episode, this is him having fun and writing the people he isn't couple points to that too blake uh in his autobiography when you all can read it he was nearly murdered twice in his life once by a family member and once by a street gang like he nearly was killed so him and murder go hand in hand too in his experiences uh to nicole's point uh when you mentioned uh sheridan's interaction at the end i did throw out on twitter and uh, facebook uh asking folks what they thought of the episode and alexander who's one of our uh producers said my favorite part is the very end when sheridan needs brother theo's authority and guidance to practice the kind of forgiveness he talked about throughout the episode it shows a moment of weakness in our hero and how important it is to rely on others and blake to your point about the religious aspect mike uh williams who actually runs grace sector podcast or is a part of Grace Sector Podcast, said, uh, he, I love how JMS is able to write religion and religious people really well. Mm-hmm. Kevin. Yeah, that's that was one of the points I wanted to make is that JMS has said that just because he's an atheist doesn't mean that he doesn't like, well, clearly he likes writing you know, religion into his shows because he thinks it's a very thought-provoking aspect to bring in. And course this brings in you know capital punishment and brings in the nature versus nurture debate which i i found very interesting because it was really clear that he was no longer the same person at all and it and it it definitely you know without really being in your face about it argues that um you know it's more about the nurture side than the nature side which i think you know most people who are you know born into a you know, with with genes of people they wish they ne- wouldn't necessarily uh, wish they had been, you know, would agree with. Um, 
it, it's pretty clear that the the one of the arguments of this episode is that the the nurture side is more important. But um, I, I just wanted to also uh, point out that it's interesting when they were talking. You know, Delenn was actually really key to this episode in a couple of ways because not only was that. Lanier and Delenn discussion really um, interesting with uh, with brother uh, Edward, but her discussion with Garibaldi was really interesting, too, because it really brought in the small C conservative, you know, viewpoint into play and allowed, you know, her to kind of, you know, Hey, but isn't that a problem and, you know, type of a thing. And so, you know, it, it allowed for a really thought provoking couple of scenes, but uh, Bill Mooney actually commented how much they, the crew really enjoyed working with Brad Dourif in this episode that he really brought it and it, it got some of the best uh, performances out of the rest of the group too, because they, they thought so highly of his work and certainly him, you know, having the number of IMDb credits certainly would, uh, would bolster that argument, but it is a very, very thought-provoking episode. It's one that I think I'll be thinking about for a while because I've been, you know, anti-death penalty for a long time, and it really is a, okay. Well, if you you are, or you aren't. Uh, how do you feel about this? And it's like, well, I don't know how I feel about it because it's all it's all pretty theoretical, but it is really interesting. I'll I'll give it that. Nicole, you had something about the scene. Yeah, so maybe I interpreted this wrong, but did Delenn not get the reference an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Like, she did she not get it? Wouldn't given that that's a an Earth. It's biblical. a human. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just well, thought that was kind of cute, actually. <laughs> well, in her response is a quote that yeah. has been used before. I it's been used so many times I can't figure out who actually said it first. But we would have a civilization that's eyeless and toothless. That's yeah. not JMS. Well, I mean, JMS wrote it, but it's been used before. And by the way, for those playing the home game, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth does not mean what everyone thinks it means. The whole take an eye, you lose an eye. It is you're supposed to keep the punishment in line with the crime, so you don't go over punishing people. That's what eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth means. But, you know, who cares? Are, Justin, are we going to debate the proportional response now, Scott? <laughs> well, we are talking about Christianity, but I'll leave it at that. Justin. I know uh, Nicole had mentioned something about she wasn't really sure if she could really like um, Edward's past or Edward as much as she wanted to, given his past. I actually think his past re revelation made me like him a little bit more, especially the way that he responded to those revelations. Um, you could tell he was absolutely horrified and repentant by the person that he was. So even after, um, I think it was when uh, Theo confronted him about it, and he's like, "No, justice has to be done. I have to, I have to be, I have to meet my fate." And he even walked in, and that's that's what kind of makes the whole thing so moving towards the end, where. He did be brave in the Jesus Garden because I can't remember the name of it. And then the one other last thing that I wanted to say on this point was that scene with Sheridan at the end. I felt Theo was extremely standoffish with Sheridan to almost make me question. Like, for some reason, I thought I was I just saw him in a different light. Like, why is he being this aggressive with Sheridan when um, what is it, Brother Malcolm was brought in? And, you know, Sheridan's reaction to it. And it almost kind of felt like I couldn't trust Theo, but as much as I did in the past, but 
with this discussion, I actually completely reverse that. So that's one thing I like about these discussions is it makes me everybody. It, it makes me realize that this was more about forgiveness and less about Theo trying to hide something, which is very non tinfoil hat of me. So thank you for helping me with personal growth. From a writing standpoint, you can't, you know, warn the char- Sheridan character about what's coming because then that kind of ruins the entire scene. But, and it right. definitely is very like, it, it gets into that forgiveness, which, it, which Theo is right. That is the hardest or one of the hardest things in life. I thought that at the end of that scene, you're like, man, that was really well written, but it does make you think, oh, well, maybe Theo should have warned them. Well, from a writing standpoint, I'm not sure that was really possible. And I'll go one step more and say, it wasn't just well-written, it was well-acted too. Because sure. the the whole point, and Justin, I know you've already said that you kind of changed your opinion on it. But the way I see it initially is it's not Theo coming at Sheridan. It's Theo ensuring that Malcolm, who is very fragile because of many reasons, he's just joined the order. He has implanted memories and so forth and so on. Theo is being very protective of Malcolm throughout that. And you can tell that with the acting too. And by the way, Jesus Garden has to be a chain restaurant in Florida. If not, we have to start one. (laughs) Mike. A lot of things have been touched on already. And I actually hope we talk about some of these other aspects too. But this this episode is beautiful because it is a multi-tiered thinker there are there are a number of different facets from nature versus nurture to um you know the morality of what they're even doing uh uh, as far as their their new form of capital punishment um the thing that really gets me in this one is is how well written it is because i really like for lack of a better word i guess uh, uh cycles or 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 the the ironic turn so like not only do you have uh brother edward uh, re- giving the story of Gethsemane, and then you know, basically throughout the episode, by the end, he he lives it out himself. He kind of foreshadows his own destiny. The other side of it that I think is is so so good is the fact that you spend most of this episode liking and then sympathizing for Brother Edward, only to find out that he's a serial killer, or at least he used to be. Then, at the end of this episode, he's dealt justice, sort of, by somebody who is an unrepentant killer. And at the end of that episode, Malcolm comes in, mind-wiped, smiling, starry-eyed, and you don't like him. He is the same guy as Edward, every bit. And you have a visceral, exact opposite reaction, and that is the whole point of this episode, start to finish. It's amazing. Yes. Jesse. Sorry, my brain is going so many different ways. I have a thousand notes that I didn't have right before this conversation. Um, so when we had this conversation the first time, I believe I asked the question, how is it punishment? If you wipe their mind, how is that punishment to them? And I stand by that. Like this dude was living his best life. Like he murdered nine people and he was living a very peaceful, very productive life. And how is that punishment to him? Because he doesn't remember that he murdered nine people. That's not punishment. Like I, I struggled with it because like Kevin, I am adamantly against the death penalty because there are so many, there are so many different levels as to why it's not just right. Like it's just, there's, we could unpack it for days and spend hours on that or days on that alone, but fast forwarding it to, okay, well, we're going to replace murdering somebody with just wiping their memory clean. That to me 
I don't know. It still doesn't seem like punishment. And this, this episode really like fast forwarded it into hyperspeed for me and made me think like, "Mm, this still isn't punishment. The, the reason I've heard several people say he got, there was justice at the end. Was there only justice because somebody murdered him? What if he would have died an old man and, and like old age, peaceful death, you know, that wouldn't be, would that be justice for the nine people that got killed? I don't, I'm, I'm struggling with the whole justice thing. Cause everybody keeps talking about forgiving and forgiveness and, you know, Christians love their forgiveness, but it's easier said than done. You know, honestly, I'm sorry, but it's up to God to forgive you. I struggle with doing so. So the whole punishment thing, I'm just not, I'm not on board with. It doesn't seem like a punishment to me. I agree 100%. I don't I don't think that it is punishment. What I do think it is, is reform, but it's forced reform. And what does that really mean? What, you know, we had this question mm-hmm. before and I still don't know the answer. What is justice? Right. If, if nine people are dead, what kind of justice are you ever going to get? You know, and, and the other side of that is, isn't a large part of the justice system, uh, to reform people, to, mm-hmm. to fix them and put them back on the streets and productive members of society. And the, the mind wiping thing is like a weird shortcut that they're taking to do that. I don't know that it's right, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and to go, and Jesse, I'm so glad you brought up what you talked about with quality of mercy because half of us on this podcast had to be very quiet <laughs> when you were talking about quality of mercy because we knew this episode was coming. But the other thing that we learned in this episode that we didn't learn in quality of mercy was it's not a mind wipe. They just put up barriers. So that personality, right. they, they tell you. That personality is still there. Now, is it dormant? Is it a, a, aware? We don't know, but it's not even really a mind wipe. It's putting up barriers that a Centauri telepath can come around and take down. Emily. That was kind of the point I was going to make is how effective is it really if these people can just start dropping hints about stuff and triggering all the memories to come back? So is it really effective either as a form of punishment? Because what Jesse said, now they get to live their best life, you know, doing whatever, having no feelings of like guilt or remorse or even having to deal with the consequences of their actions and then oh look people can't like the victim's family can hunt them down and trigger all these memories to come back which then created a whole new situation and then they had to do the loss of personality on someone else because of it so it just it doesn't seem an effective method of really anything jesse i like mike's point about reform because you're 100% right that the justice system, love it or hate it, fails in several different areas. You know, we send people to prison and let's be very clear, there is zero reform in a prison. And in fact, it does usually more harm than it does good. But when I watched the first one, when we when this concept first came up, my understanding was they got their mind wiped and then they went and did like <laughs> physical labor somewhere, like just like, like a chain gang. Right. And so, um, I, that was how I saw it. And then when I see this guy and, and what he's doing to serve the, you know, the communities that he hurt in the first place, it was nothing like I saw it the first time. So I, it's interesting what you said there too, because to me, if, if it did work that way, how fair would it be that you're, you are mind wipe, you become a brand new person, now you and work. then you're like, "Hey, go go break rocks." Sure, sure. <laughs> and reasons. I mean that 
yeah, that, that totally, I mean, it, you know, it totally makes sense, but that for the first time that we had that conversation, that's kind of, I don't know why, but that's kind of how I took it. And then, yeah, this is definitely more progressive if you're talking about reform, but then you have to balance that, like you said, with justice and how do you get justice and can you ever really get justice? And, you know, you could stand there and murder him and it's still not justice because it still doesn't bring back the nine people that he killed. So it's, it's a weird dance that our justice system still does to this day. Gavin. I think that it is, it is more about um, a punishment. It is also reform, but the fact that society is completely rejecting who you are and wiping, hopefully permanently, although we know that's not the case, wiping permanently uh, from existence who you were, that's as much of a punishment without killing somebody as you can really get. But um, I think that they they kind of allude to the fact that it it is a situation where they need to be sent away from where they used to be to try and minimize the opportunity for the whole thing to be figured out. And for, uh, you know, victims, families or anyone else to come after. But, you know, clearly they needed to make it more foolproof than that. Um, To me, when I was watching this uh, several weeks ago, I had remembered this as Brother Theo was in on it initially with Brother Edward, which is clearly not the case. But it may have made things a little bit better if he had been or somebody in the order had been to the point that they could try to protect him a little bit better. Um, So, you know, maybe that maybe that's a a flaw in the system, although the the writing certainly is is interesting the way that this is. Um, you, You wonder if Brother Malcolm will be better protected. I would imagine that he would be. Um, but this, this episode is by far the one that I'm, I'm probably going to come back to every once in a while. Not, not just because I have such an interest in, uh, in, you know, capital punishment, um, you know, thought, but the fact that the, the religious aspect is so potent in this, um, when religion isn't particularly important to me at all but um this is very thought-provoking i have a question for kevin so you say that it's a punishment what what greater punishment can you have for somebody or what greater punishment can you do to somebody than to erase everything that they've been and everything that they that they are but is it a punishment is it really effective if that person doesn't know what's happening well that's been one of my my arguments about capital punishment, and we may be getting slightly sidetracked here, but um, <laughs> is that killing somebody it seems like less of a punishment than somebody, you know, being in prison for the rest of their life to me, because you're you're giving somebody an out, which I, I realize is what you and Mike might be arguing with this. And, and I, I grant that that's an it's an, certainly an aspect of that. But, you know, with, you know, prison overcrowding and costs and the moral implications of, of, uh, you know, electric chair or any, any other, you know, awful, awful death penalty method. I don't know if, if this was a, a possibility and certainly it isn't because it's a science fiction. I just feel like I don't see another uh, better solution necessarily 
than what this kind of presents, even though I don't, I, I agree. I don't think there really is any, you know, justice that someone can get for killing nine people. I mean, even, even somebody like me was very quiet and, and not particularly uncomfortable the day that they killed Timothy McVeigh because that motherfucker deserved every bit of the sparks he got or whatever other method they used. Yeah. And it's not really a, I, I don't think I'm really asking the question of, is it a punishment, right? Is it, is it, and whether we're talking about one is better than the other, or is it justice or is it this, is it besides reform, which uh, clearly I am on board with, um, but besides reform, is it effective for that person to not remember what they did, right? Like, is it a punishment to them if they don't remember that they need to be punished? So I, I, it, it begs the question, like, is that really um, effective to that person? Now, is it effective to society? That's a different story. That, that you absolutely could make an argument for that. Mm-hmm. Like, so and I think jumping in a little bit there is some of the pieces missing. It's Brother Theo didn't know about Brother Edward. Mm-hmm. You know, it was flat out said. Brother Edward, you know, they'd had the mind wipe done and he was in a facility that there was a, I believe they said it was a fire. Yep. Fine. And that he was presumed dead. And that when he basically woke up from this, he had this program desire to be of service to society. He ended up in a monastery. So, you know, they didn't know. So I don't think it's just they mind wipe these folks and send them on their way and say, you know, go forth and do whatever. I think there are controls in place. I just think in this instance, you know, this guy fell through the cracks and he just happened to end up in this monastery. And that's why it took the families nine years to track the guy down, you know. And it's not that it was just having these people turned out into the wild. And I think Brother Theo requested Malcolm uh, specifically to have him in their care uh, one for the practice of forgiveness, but also to try to prevent the problems that happened with Edward. Yeah. So I think it was Theo's attempt to try to do it right this time, knowing what they were getting into and being able to put those safeguards in. Justin. Um, I'm just going to drop my dollar fifty um, on this topic because of inflation. It's not two cents anymore, but um, <laughs> that ching. <laughs> it, I guess, I guess to me and my own personal thoughts on this, and I've been listening to both sides and have kind of flip-flopped in my own brain a couple times during this whole discussion. It, de- I guess to me, it depends on your definition of a person. What is the person? Is the person the physical body or is the person the, the mental, the mental is, is, is the person, the mind, the consciousness? And I guess where I'm falling on this side of the topic is this is absolutely a form of capital punishment. You are killing the person. And that's where the justice comes in. This is a form of punishment. You are erasing who they were, the essence of their entire being. You are, in essence, killing them. Now, you're not killing them physically. The body is still of use to the system. So if you can wipe the mind, if you can erase that person, but still find a way, still find a way to, in that same body, make that body still of use to society by creating a whole new person, a whole new identity, who it is that is this system perfect? Obviously not. Any any half decent telepath can obviously break through the system and bring back some of those memories. But if it worked the way it was supposed to, that individual, that new individual, Edward, should have never have known that he was Charlie in his quote unquote past life. So I 100% think that this is a form of capital punishment. Uh, you are you are completely killing that person, and but you're still creating a new person that can perhaps be a benefit. And to me, it's really no different than 
pumping them full of drugs or pumping them full of electricity and then cremating them. You're still you're still killing a person either way. Justin, that's why I think that scene with Delenn, Lanier, and Edward is so impactful. Absolutely. Because Lanier gets the same point. He's like, our, we just have a shell, and our soul is a projection of that soul. And Edward doesn't truly understand, but, but I think at the end of the episode, he does. And to Jesse's point earlier on that same point, is it punishment or not? Edward asks the same question. Imagine if I die of old age and go up to the pearly gates and then have to confess sins I don't know about. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a crisis of faith right there. So, yeah, Justin, you're making good points there. Nicole. I also wanted to add to that, too, is, um, you know, Jesse had asked, is it a punishment? Like if they don't remember what they did. But I think if they remembered what they did, they would still be dangerous and be a threat. The whole point is that if they like. Say, for instance, if they still remember that, oh, I killed nine people. Clearly, he was a murderer. He enjoyed it. Right. So if he remembered what he did, he would still be a threat. So it would basically be like because those feelings and thoughts aren't going to go away. So like, say, if they wiped him, but they still remembered what they did in my in my mind, I'm just curious, like, what do you guys think of that? Like, do you think he would I think he'd probably still be a threat. You know what I mean? Um, And it kind of reminds me almost of like witness protection, but of the mind. You know what I mean? Like a whole new identity, a whole new memory, a whole new set. And and I think Blake said it. He this guy fell through the cracks. Otherwise, I think it probably is handled differently. And Justin made a good point, too, about, yeah, it is a punishment because your your soul and, and like who you are and your memories are your essence. Right. Your body's just an outward shell, essentially. And that's kind of backing up what you said, Scott, with what Lanier said. But I really think like I wonder what you guys think about, you know, say, for instance, if they wipe everything, but they remember why it was wiped, if you think they would be a threat still, because I think they would, um, because if somebody's a murderer, clearly something's wrong in their mind that makes them want to do that and like to do that and enjoy it. Like we saw with Jack the Ripper, like he liked killing those women. You know what I mean? He so like I feel like if they knew what their ish like what they did it wouldn't yes it would still be a punishment but not really because they i feel like nothing would change if they don't fully wipe them does that make sense did i ramble no does anyone want to answer nicole before i do because i, I want to answer. i do it's it's like i planted her in the crowd because this is exactly the point that i was going to talk about <laughs> is is the fact that you know they they made a point of saying that that edward slash charlie you know he he didn't just murder somebody in defense or to you know steal from a gas station or something like that like he was a serial killer he murdered nine people so i feel like it's always comfortable for us to want to believe that people like that people that are capable of something like that are wired wrong somehow they have a chemical imbalance or their brains don't work right or something like that and i think that is sometimes true but it brings in you know, Kevin mentioned it first, nature versus nurture. And and what we find out in this episode is I think that that is not always the case. It's not always that you're just broken and irredeemable. Sometimes it's that you were raised in the worst possible circumstances. Uh, And I think this is probably an echo of JMS himself, you know? And so what we find out is once, once the, 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 the curtain is pulled back for Edward, because he is a different person with a whole different set of circumstances. And he looks back at what he used to be. He's horrified by it. And he himself doesn't know whether there's anything he can do to redeem himself from, from what Charlie did. 
Yeah, now that I'm Mike, I'm 100% with you. And this is where I disagree with you, Nicole, is the episode tells us, at least in this story, Edward knows. Edward has had the barrier removed. So he remembers these murders. He doesn't go out killing again. He has a yeah. crisis and says that now I must face punishment. But there's nothing in there that Edward goes, well, man, I really do love those black roses. I love them. Well, this is also after eight years of serving as a monk, too. So he had time to reform and regroup and things like that. You know what I mean? So but it was just more of a rhetorical question of do you think that he'd be a threat still? Because I, I think that the whole point of wiping their mind is you want to wipe everything completely and start blank. It, it kind of is a shortcut to reform, essentially. You know, I forgot who said that. But like, that's why I posed the question of do we even think, you know, that is an issue or not? I, I mean, and I think to, to your point, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. I think it's entirely possible that for some people in some circumstances, you know, if, if you forgot that you did a bunch of horrible stuff and then all of a sudden those memories piled back on, depending on what you'd been through between then and now, and, you know, maybe that would be the trigger, but that wasn't, wasn't the case for Edward. Yeah. At least in this story. Yep. Yeah. Jesse. People, I think people reform all the time without having their brains wiped. Maybe it is a, a direct path to, you know, getting a quicker result. But I think people reform. And, you know, there's people there's people in the justice system that specifically do a job but based on the fact that people do reform themselves. So I have, now I have another question. So Justin, you had an excellent point. And so, this is why I love these conversations because we can debate about a sci-fi show, but then also actually have like, really like mind, you know, sparking, like thought changing conversations. So you have a great point about it being a, the soul being the core of the, the being, right? Um, so I have a question, how many people here would be okay with knowing that the soul died, but the body and the hands that murdered your loved one or your, you know, whatever, um, is still walking around like that. I, I don't know how I would be like, oh, great. His hands that murdered my mom are still alive like that. That's a really like hard concept to try to wrap my brain around. I can see why you, how, why your point is very valid because you're right. I wholeheartedly believe that my shell is driven by the soul that was placed in it. But if I use my shell to murder somebody, then like, is it just enough to just murder the soul? I don't know. I guess it comes down to whether you're convinced that the punishment is just and whether you think the the wipe is truly what it's made out to be. It's such a foreign concept to us because it's a sci-fi show and not mm -hmm. based in reality whatsoever that uh, it's it's kind of hard to know how someone would react. It's certainly hard for me to know how I would react. Since I clearly have a problem with forgiveness, I think I probably would probably have a problem with this too. But um, but you know, it was it was really clear watching the the episode that he was nothing like the man that he was, mm -hmm. and so you would hope that that someone who was you know, justifiably angry about the crime would give it a beat to think about whether it was actually, you know, effective and just or not. But a lot of people have a very hard time, including myself, 
um, you know, separating themselves long enough to bring down their emotional response so that they can, you know, they can really think about something that deeply that's so personal. Yeah, it's hard to remove yourself from the situation and and look at it. And and again, how do you how do you how do you gauge that? What's the what's the time frame? Because we hear it all the time. People go to prison and they find Jesus, right? And then how many people do you hear? Oh, he only found Jesus because he's in prison. Like people don't take that seriously. So what's the time frame for that? Where do you gauge? Like, is it a year? Is it eight years? Like, do you have to do so many good deeds? What does that look like? So it's kind of hard. Justin. Yeah, I just wanted to actually answer Jesse's question. I mean, I I want to think deep down that I would be okay with some kind of system with like that. But to be honest, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, not being placed in that situation. I mean, I could see just from how I know I've reacted to situations in the past that I could very easily be someone who's very tolerant of that. But also at the same time, I could very easily be one of those family members standing around in that circle too. That's the human dichotomy, man. We want to think that we'll always do the right thing in a particular situation, but there's absolutely no guarantee that we will until we're placed in that situation. Justin brings up a good point that there was a whole room full of people. It wasn't just Malcolm. So what happened to the rest of them? (laughs) Yeah. You're good to go. (laughs) Well, Malcolm even said that um there was the whole room of them but even he said when he was standing before edward that all of them lost their nerve and he was the only one that was willing to go through with it yep and he was happy to and takes full responsibility emily this is such an interesting discussion and i know we keep talking about justice and reform and what i keep thinking is we all know we can't bring back people who've been murdered we know that so how do you get justice for that? And are we actually looking for justice or are we looking for a risk reduction? Are we just trying to hope that no more people are killed? And is that the actual goal? Because if that's the real goal, then erasing that part of the personality might be the best option. Um, if he didn't have remorse for it while he was doing it, I mean, the chance of him reforming through any sort of punishment may not have been as effective, but his personality was fundamentally changed. He became someone else. And when he realized what he did, then then the remorse kicked in. But yeah, it is really interesting to f- try to figure out what are we, what is the actual goal in any of these? Is it to actually express our anger at what was done? Is it like an anger release? Is that the purpose of the punishment? Is it to reduce the risk of them doing these actions again? You know, what's the, what is the end goal? And I think part of the struggle is for um, everyone, it might be different because obviously for some of those family members, the goal was for him to die, mm-hmm. was for him to just no longer exist in any form, in any context, they didn't care anymore. He as a being needed to be done. <laughs> and, you know, for brother Theo, it was more about changing him and taking away the risk that he would do it again. So I find that aspect really interesting. Nicole. And just kind of a follow-up thought or comment is what do we think is justice? What do we want? Like, what is the answer? And I think when emotions are involved, if it like directly affects a person specifically, they're not going to be rational. They're not going to be clear about it. You know, Um, I don't know what I would do in that situation. And I don't want to find out because I am an empathetic person and I do 
no wish no harm but like if someone killed somebody that i love like put me in a room with them that'll be their punishment you know what i mean like so i think when our emotions are involved it's hard to think rationally and know exactly what we need or what we want well we don't let families on juries yeah we try that we we don't let them be on juries well i think you're exactly right i think it's different depending on who you talk to i don't think there's any unanimous agreement some people want revenge some people want reform i actually really (laughs) liked that turn of phrase risk reduction because Mm -hmm. it's so corporate and yet so accurate yeah yeah to the justice point uh, personally i would be against this as much as i'm against capital punishment because i believe that justice is the ability to reform if you can and uh i worked with a program uh, for many years that wor- 100% worked with folks who were returning citizens, as they called them, folks who were coming out of prison. And they had a lot of stuff on their rap sheet. But at the end of the day, they got the opportunity to correct that in one way, shape, or form or another. If we kill somebody by electric chair or death of personality, they no longer have the ability to even have a chance to correct it, which is why I, I'd be against both of them. To Nicole, your question about justice, I don't think this is justice. I think this is making the families feel better. Or, or not. Or not, in this case, you're <laughs> right. But you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's to Garibaldi's point, Garibaldi says it at the beginning of the episode, this is just to make us feel more progressive. We're still getting rid of the people. We're just doing it in a more humane way. But what's that do? Jesse? I think that definitely one of the reasons, and you'll hear judges read when, right before they sentence somebody, You'll hear judges read their reasons as to why they have to pass the sentence that they pass. And deterrence is absolutely always one of them. You know, risk reduction, deterrence, like stopping this person from doing it again and deterring other people from doing the same thing. But how effective is it, right? Like you just said, you you worked with a reentry population and um, rap sheet after rap sheet after, you know, like the rap sheets are like 27 pages of starting in 1989. And, you know, but... People are told on a daily basis, you're never done. Your chances never of reform is never up until the day that you don't have that option anymore. So, I mean, I definitely am a huge fan of try until you get it right. And I, I like your point about, you know, letting them do it on their own instead of erasing them and forcing them to do it. So it, it, I, to me, it, it would mean more if you reform on your own than, you know, the fast track to I have no choice. Not, not to sidetrack this conversation too much, but one of my favorite things that that program did was they had what's called the storybook program where they would go into prisons and find parents, mothers and fathers, and take a book and record. And it used to be on tape. Now they're doing it video and record them reading to their kids because, again, making that connection to where when they do come out, if they do come out, they have something to latch on to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, there, there's a lot of things we can be doing with the justice system that we don't. And it's, yeah. Mike. So I'm going to make one last point. I'm going to pull the pin on this grenade and walk away. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, and it brings up, we've, we've mentioned the word punishment an awful lot. And I guess the question you know, really vaguely to put out there is what is the role of punishment in the justice system in reform and corrections? Because they're not punishment officers, they're correction officers. Is punishment correcting a behavior? Or in your example, Scott, that's not punishment. That is a different way to try to help people reform by showing them that they have a a path forward to something better. So I'm positive Jesse has thoughts on this. (laughs) 
so, I think you'd uh, be right. So uh, click, roll, and uh, I'm out. Kevin, would you like to jump on the grenade before Jesse or what? <laughs> the only thing that I was going to say, which I, I guess d- does go along with this a little bit, is that this is a, a very American conversation because the rest of the world, or at least you know, the rest of the developed world, if you want to put it that way, I don't mean to be derogatory, has gotten this right a lot better than we do. And that part of it is keeping people out of prison by keeping them from doing crime in the first place. And that's not something that we do particularly well. So I'll just throw that out there. And the other thing I will say, though, is that while I agree that this is probably just as egregious as as uh, death capital punishment, what I will say is there is a, a point at which, and I, I don't think anyone would disagree, that somebody just is beyond, you know, any sort of reform and killing nine people, I would put somebody in that category. So I'm back to this not being the worst idea that's ever been been <laughs> brought up. But I don't love it. But um, my my first, uh, my first solution would be, well, let's try to keep people from doing it in the first place. But mm-hmm. But again, social programs, what? Yeah, we don't do those. Right. I mean, this is just the most American conversation possible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to our international listeners. Yes, we we get this. We get this issue very wrong. Sorry. Bye. We are number one in Finland. We apologize. And the woke comments start rolling in. (laughs) Oh, bring it. Bring it. Jesse. Oh, I can see the steam coming out of her ears. Guys. Our Here we go. prison system is first. <laughs> our prison system is absolutely not about rehabilitation in any way, shape, or form. I believe that at some point that's exactly how it started out, um, but we're not there. And clearly, everybody has said that our you know other countries are getting it right. Other countries. Prison is a place for people that deserve to go to prison, and not everybody deserves to go to prison. But what America does is sends everybody to prison. You use drugs, go to prison. You, you know, steal something low level, you go to prison. You murder somebody, you go to prison. All these people are in the same place at the same time, getting better or worse at what they did before they went in. So you're a person of color, go to prison. Yes. Yes. You are a low, you know, low income, go to prison. You can't afford to get out because you can't afford to post bail, go to stay in prison. Like mental health. Yes. Mental, Mm -hmm. listen, substance abuse, mental health, DV, like you, you, you get beat on, go to prison. You get, you know, it's just like, we're not doing anything in the prison system that is helping people come out and be more productive citizens. So then when you put them on community supervision, i.e. parole or supervised release or probation, they go right back into the same situation. And then they have the, 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 the luck of being able to meet all of the wrong people in prison. The people that are supposed to be there, they met them. And they got out. Those people that are supposed to be there don't usually get out. So it's we're not doing what we should be doing. It is absolutely about punishment, retribution, um, a sanction. Like there, this is not go in. There are so many programs. I could do this for hours. There are so many programs that they that they could be doing that they don't that they used to do that they no longer do. To your point, Scott, the the mothers, um, they used to do this program and I know some state do it, but the federal system doesn't anymore where mothers get to stay with their babies up until two or three years old. Um, they have nurseries, they have other programs, like those have all been defunded because, you know, why would you want to build a bond with your child? 
So yeah, it's not about, it's not about getting better. It's about go sit down for a while and then get out and come, come be better at what you were doing before. Hey, what's the definition of insanity again? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, hundred percent. Blake. I would just say, I don't think the U S prison system's ever been one of rehabilitation. No. And then they I just turbocharged it when they put for profit prisons in the mix mm-hmm. with it. But yep. really looking at this with this whole, you know, death of personality idea, I kind of think that's the carryover is, you know, what can you do with these people to make them worth the cost? You basically make them, for lack of a better phrase, a slave to society at that point. Um, the way it sounds is, you know, you program them to be of service to society. You program them to, to go do something for society. And you really start to question in the ethics in there of, are they allowed a life with that? Or are they literally just programmed to go do a job to, you know, work as a janitor somewhere and that's all they do? And they do they get paid for that? Do they have a living with that? You know, there's so many ethical questions that this would even open up beyond just the whole capital punishment discussion, you know, as to what happens afterwards. I mean, you look at that now, you've got prison industries where you've got inmates working, making clothing, furniture, other things that aren't even earning an appropriate wage for doing that. They're just literally being used as a slave labor class. Mm-hmm. Mike. You guys, I'm trying to get out and you keep pulling me back in. <laughs> this podcast is my prison. We're, we're just trying to piss <laughs> off as many people as we can today, Mike. Well, I think we've done a pretty good job of that by now. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, no, in Louisiana, prisoners can... can uh, go work in a rodeo i'm sure totally by choice no uh, i did i remembered my point now uh the question that i was going to bring is okay so yeah how ethical is it to reprogram somebody to be a servant to society and could we not just as easily in that case reprogram dear charlie to just not kill people anymore hmm. i mean <laughs> let him let him rehabilitate himself instead of making him rehabilitate correct <sighs> shout out to jms who has given us an hour and a half of just yes. trying to figure out what punishment means and yeah. is it fair or not. I think that's the point we've been trying to make too, is this is a 30 year old show. Yes. And we're still rehashing these conversations. I mean, we've had an hour and a half conversation on thoughts provoked by a 30 year old show mm-hmm. that are still very much as relevant now as what they would have been then. A show that almost didn't make it because of some dude on the used nets. Just throwing that out there again. It almost didn't even go to air. We've been talking about crime and punishment a lot in this episode, and I completely am happy that we have. The one other aspect of this episode that I really enjoy is the actual Gethsemane part. And the idea that Edward asks for the entire episode, even before he finds out who he is, is in a moment of pure judgment, when you know you are not getting out alive, would you be able to have the courage to sit there? And Edward asks of himself, would I have the courage to sit there? And it turns out he did. And I just, I think that every one of us has asked that question at least 10 times in their life. Would I have the ability or courage to take it and know that it's not going to go well for me? And it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Edward found out. Nicole. That's the part that made me cry. And when he said, I am brave enough to stand in the garden and wait. Yeah, we've all been faced with that. Like when the shit hits the fan, are we are we able to stand up? And I think that happens to us in our lives in many different ways. And it not necessarily as intense as like you're going to die, but like we have to face situations that we don't want to face. You know what I mean? And each of us have a garden of Gethsemane 
that is something different. So I think that that part made me cry so much and was so hard because I never in my life imagined that I would be able to take care uh, of a sick parent and like from start to finish be there from, you know, diagnosis to her death. And and that was something that was a real test for me. And it put me in therapy. I'm not going to lie. But when when you're faced with something, that is kind of a question. Do I have the guts to deal with this or can I run? Can I avoid it? And I will admit 100%, I am the queen of pretending I'm fine and putting on a smiling face. Mm -hmm. And 90% of the time, nobody would know something is wrong with me, but I might be dying inside, you know? So I think that part resonated with me so much because he did say in the beginning, he wasn't brave enough, but then he said, I was brave enough. And I stood there and I took my punishment and I was like, damn, yo, why you got to make us question every fucking situation in our lives? Like I was like sitting here ugly crying, watching that part. Jesse, would you like to ugly cry as well? I am not a crier. <laughs> I don't know if you guys haven't noticed, but uh, 20 years, you've probably seen me cry like once. Um, I, I definitely agree that I think that it's all about what your cause is and what 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 you're willing to stand there for. I, mine was always, I asked the question, if I was alive during the, <clears throat> the 60s, would I have gotten on the bus? Um, you know, and watching the freedom riders and watching stuff like that. And would I have, would I've had the balls to get on the bus and go and do the scariest shit ever. It just ranks right up there with that. You got to find your cause and how you'll Mike, you can't possibly disagree with me on that. Nope. I'm I'm, I'm not. I'm I'm debating whether to even say what I'm about to say because oh, I feel like it, because I'm I feel done. like it shits on this whole conversation in a little bit. Well, that's definitely a Mike move. So go yeah. for it. Go ahead. <laughs> So did Edward only stay there because he was programmed mm. and he this felt like podcast. it had to, and it, and it felt like he had to serve those victims. Can somehow. we hold off on the whole free will versus not right. free will for another podcast? Can yeah. we do that please? please. I don't have the bandwidth for that discussion. Okay, I mean, the first, you, the you, first you, grenade it, was a dud. This one. Do we have free will or is it all pre-programmed? Yeah, I I would honestly think that the evidence and science says it's all pre-programmed. Honestly, it's all a simulation, all? guys. It's all a simulation. I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> I'll take Nothing my blue pill now, please. Am I a sim? Is that? I'm trying. Happening? I'm trying to think. Uh, first one, guys. Is there an episode where we can talk about free will? I not this one, please. How far can Grey Seventeen get up its own ass? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's ask Nicole about that. Who talked about a uh, trailer of butt stuff earlier? She may be the one to answer that. Oh, All right. You know... Remember those cycles I was talking about earlier? <laughs> I'll and tell you what, though. Out beyond the rim. Y'all need open. Jesus. <laughs> we need Jesus Garden. garden. It's open until 9 a.m. on Fridays. Jesus Garden. <laughs> we got Space Jesus and Jesus Garden. We need a great waffles. Queso. <laughs> wow. Got to be the blandest, most unseasoned white people food ever. Yeah, it's gonna be like the raisins the, the, in the potato salad, that type of shit. No, oh. no, it's gonna be Gross. it's gonna be really generic Chinese food. Is what's gonna mm. be white people like Panda Chinese Express. Food. Yeah, Panda Express. that checks out. Fucking Mike, man. <laughs> Fucking Mike. We could just have Taco Bell, and then it would just be the same thing. No, because then we'll all be sick. Because I choose to live moss. <laughs> the only thing that Jesus Garden has to have is the wine that they serve for the communion it has to be Boone's Farm. Priest comes out with the boxed wine under his arm. <laughs> and you just stand there and he pours the spout. Pours in your it mouth. right in your mouth. 
Yeah, oh, I if there's a hell, we're all going there, kids. Girl, but I think we're there. <sighs> okay. The, the, the only other thing I wanted to add to this episode, and I swear to God, it's not a grenade. One of the things I love about the Lanier comment about the universe understanding itself is it's a Carl Sagan comment that um, I just, whenever I can comment on Carl Sagan and point him out, I'm going to. So Carl Sagan said, this is, the cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way of the universe to know itself. And I'm sure other people have said it too, but Carl Sagan's a badass. So I'm going to use his quote. Anything else, guys, before we get into questions, predictions? I don't want to dwell on it because my mental bandwidth is spent now. But like, <laughs> I actually really did enjoy thinking about like what the Mimbari philosophy about life is and how it, we're mm-hmm. all one giant unisoul. That was you know, pretty cool. The universe trying to figure itself out. That, you know, that's some really interesting uh, and, and somewhat, I can see how that would be comforting to a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know? Which also puts the whole battle of the line in perspective. They were trying to wipe out an entire species that they feel is all part of the universe. Interesting, isn't it? That's why they stopped. Clearly, clearly not a uh, particular viewpoint shared by every cast of Minbari <laughs> society. <laughs> I don't think Narun would agree with Dylan. I don't think so. Also, fuck can Narun. see why that would <laughs> kind of chafe a little bit with the Soul Taker butthole head people <laughs> the soul hunter there's our butthole count for They're off stealing stealing pieces of the unisol to put in jars <laughs> i'm still remembering the asmr of dylan cracking open the eggs <sighs> <sighs> episode two for those who want to check it out well now i'm just thinking about baja blast okay go on <laughs> before we go into questions predictions i would legitimately want to thank all of you because this i think is probably been has been our most interesting and deepest conversation we've had yet which is what i was hoping for with this episode so i really appreciate all of you uh being involved in that conversation and for those who are listening be sure to add to it in the comments section. We want to hear from y'all you because this is this is an episode. I think somebody already said this, this is an episode you could be talking about for days and days and days and not get through everything. So add that to the comments so we can continue to talk about it. Let's go ahead and get in the questions and predictions for those just joining us. The newbies will ask any questions they have after this episode because they have not watched past this episode. And then they'll also get predictions for what they think is going to happen down the road on the show so let's go over to justin first questions predictions can i just say i'm worried that i saw him smile and pull out a book oh christ it's already going to be a two-hour episode justin are a lot of the brothers on babylon 5 also former murderers and criminals do we ever find that out um is brother theo one of them for all we know i mean not that that he knows of yeah not that he knows of and is that why they're on babylon 5 because they're you know kind of sent away from society to try and find out their own thing then question number two what the fuck is lita actually um is she really her or is she some kind of altered purse version of her or is she a clone is she part vorlon is she a vorlon herself who knows i think i covered all the possibilities so i'm going to be right on one part or not then some predictions during the whole minbar religion discussion valon it was said that valon was not born was was Mimbari, but was not born of Mimbar. So he's either a human or he's a Vorlon clone that is sent out to instill peace and order throughout the galaxy. And I think that is why during that scene and the season two finale, all of the other races were seeing their own religious figure because I think the Vorlons have gone through and planted these people throughout the different um, species. 
throughout the universe in order to bring peace and harmony amongst the galaxy. Um, then I can't read my own writing on this one, so I'll end it there. I have no idea what I wrote. Honestly, I can't read it. But anyway, carry on. We'll move on to Emily. Questions, predictions. Not sure if it's a prediction or a question, so it's just going to kind of cover both. So we have a second Vorlon using Lita as an encounter suit. <laughs> she is the encounter suit. <laughs> yep. I like it. So just if you want to send me that tinfoil hat, I'll be happy to take it from you. No, I, I will say, I will say if people make fun of you, you're probably right from personal experience. <laughs> but that would make you write every single episode, Justin. Wow. <laughs> I could be. I don't trust you motherfuckers anymore. <laughs> you gaslight like, the fuck out of them. <laughs> um, you actually explained the gills with uh, the different atmospheres. And then Justin kind of had my question about is everyone in Brother Theo's group uh, reformed, well, punished are they criminals who have been punished and had their personalities spiked? So, like, none of them actually know who they really are. Love it. We don't even know what to say anymore. The the, the reformed, the the no, the punished, the, the corrected, the uh, the risk reduced, <laughs> the risk mitigation. <laughs> all, all the brothers were risk mitigated. Determined. Was that it, Emily? Yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. Okay, Jesse. Questions, predictions. My first question is: How often? Are these mind wipes being hunted down by the families of the people that have been wronged? Does it happen often? Do we see it again? Um, my second question, and more importantly, is, okay, you explained the what of the neck vents, but why? Why are the neck vents there? Like, I get it. I would. Breathing. But why does she have them installed? Need to know that. That's it. That's all I got. And Nicole, questions, predictions. You know, I don't really have a lot. Um, I guess the only question I have is, uh, are we going to see Brother Malcolm come back to the Order on Babylon 5 after he's gone through his seminary training? Other than that, I would say, are we going to see more of Lita basically being a renegade telepath and like helping out Sheridan and Garibaldi and like the Rangers maybe and like kind of joining in the fight? Um, prediction wise, I don't really have anything right now. Yeah, Nicole, I'm glad you brought that up because we didn't even talk about it throughout the episode. We now have a telepath on Babylon 5, at least part-time, who doesn't have to answer to Psychor. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Okay, we'll go ahead and end it there with the newbies. We will be back next week to discuss Voices of Authority. And if you have already watched the rest of the show or don't care about spoilers, stay until after the credits, and we will answer these questions and predictions for the uh, newbies to listen to about two years from now when they can do that. So until next week, when we talk about Voices of Authority, I have been Scott and with me has been... Emily. Blake. Justin. Kevin. Jesse. Caution a mic suit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And Nicole. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You already broke my brain <laughs> twice. <laughs> And remember to like, subscribe, follow, click all the buttons except for the down arrow. And please, please, please leave a review if you can. Specifically, five-star review would be great because it really does help the channel get out to more people. Thanks again, and we will talk to you later or talk to you beyond the rim. Have a good night, and don't go murder people, please. Is this is this what we're going to do from now on? Do I need to, like book like two and a half hours per episode moving forward and mike's say. already asked how far up our own ass we can get so i mean we got plenty <laughs> of room to figure out here fuck your spoilers <laughs> goodbye
Thank you for listening to Gray 17, a Babylon 5 podcast. You can find all the places to listen to and watch this podcast at anchor.fm slash gray17podcast or youtube.com at gray17podcast. We want to hear from you, so join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or Patreon. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review where you are listening to or watching this podcast. Gray 17 is not affiliated with, and the podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by Warner Brothers or any other owners of the Babylon 5 copyright. All clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. The opening and closing themes are available from Falling Matter on YouTube. And what's out there? The rim. And beyond that? The truth. Wow, that was a long one. It was good, though. Yeah, it was. It was extremely good. <laughs> no, nothing like to be to sorry about. talk when I'm drunk. Welcome back to Beyond the Rim again. Final warning, if you have not watched past Passing Through Gethsemane, you should leave now because we are going to talk about what happens next, kind of. Although, because this is a bottle episode and I think most of the discussion was on the front end, I'm guessing this Beyond the Rim episode is going to be fairly short. But let's go ahead and dive in all. And first off, is talking about Brother Theo and his monastery monks, and that is, are more of the brothers mind wiped? Maybe. We don't know. We don't know. But I mean, I Theo, go ahead, Blake. We had a couple people asked about the the mind wipe and if more of the Brother Theo's order were past criminals and stuff. And I, I think that's interesting that they were queuing in and trying to say, well, is the whole order then that way? It's like, no, this was a guy that fell through the cracks. Uh, that ended up in the order. Nothing in there indicated that the order was made up of individuals who had been mind wiped or who had had uh, issues in the past. But if I'm going to pull a mic grenade, I will say nothing indicated that because if they were, they wouldn't know. Yeah. So what's to say that most of the mind wipe people go into the religious career sector and we, they just don't know it. Theo could be, you know, Jack the Ripper part two, for all we know. Yeah, I mean, I thinking, of, admittedly, I had the same thought, you know, going through my mind is that how many more of these guys are, you know, are, are these mind-wiped criminals? You know, this is like a thing that's been set up. How many of the dock workers are mind-wiped criminals? I mean, anyone in the service yeah. industry could potentially be one. But the other thing is, I think security would know because Garibaldi had access to the records of where up into where they thought the mind-wipe, you know, Charlie had died. So I would assume just based off that, that, you know, once one of these people gets mind wiped, it gets placed to wherever they're going to be mm-hmm. security or somebody's going to know that. So I, I would assume if the rest of the order was Garibaldi would have known that. So yeah, is I there would've... like a, a mind wiped offender registry? Yeah. Yeah, that I would agree. Sense. It seemed like it was pretty clear that, you know, they they had some level of control in place so that these people were not only you know put into a situation where they were being helpful to society but that you know there was going to be some knowledge of you know where they came from for somebody so that if it ever became a thing that somebody would know that which is why theo knew about brother malcolm it it has to work in some capacity like witness protection Mm -hmm. right that's a good point just kind of the same system. Well, and to that point, will Brother Malcolm return to B5? No. We'll see the brothers again, but no, Malcolm doesn't show yeah, up. We, we, get, we get Brother Theo one more time. Well, and you would think that, 
um, they would want to keep him away from Babylon five because that's where the crime occurred. Well, and that's like when we heard about Charlie slash Edward, he was literally removed to another part of the galaxy right after he was mind wiped. So yeah. How often are mind wipies as was termed being hunted down? I don't know. More. (laughs) Something they really go into you know yeah. after this episode it is an interesting question but it is. we really don't know the answer mm-hmm. yeah we just it never comes up again there is the question with the mind wipe process because clearly they can wipe someone's personality out and reprogram and just looking ahead to where we're going to get to later in the season with when sheridan gets captured you know later in the series when sheridan gets captured mm-hmm. and they want him to make this statement disavowing everything and alien influence almost makes you wonder why they didn't just jump to the mind wipe thing and set a personality that could have him stand there and say that. I thought that was brought up. And again, I haven't watched the whole series for almost four years now, but I thought that was brought up in the episode. Like, I think the, the, the uh, interrogator says something along the lines of, we would just have a telepath make you say it, but then they would tell it wasn't you. Or there's something that's said in that episode. I just can't yeah, remember. Call something about that. I was, I was, I thought you were going to go with the Garibaldi situation, Blake. There because, you know, they they have a you know the the situation later where he's clearly been influenced in a way. And but that to me was more of a control type thing. The same right. thing as Talia, true. just a separate triggered personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Interesting. Interesting. Moving on to Lita. What is Lita, and why was she augmented? To be Kasha's personal vessel. Yeah, but she's still Lita. She's not a clone. Yeah, she's still Lita. She's, and I I mean, I I probably said too much when I was talking about it, but this is the first time we get to see Lita as Lita. I'm I'm thinking to the the episode later where she gets her quarters, and she just points out to Zach, you know, why is it that no one talks to me unless they need me to do something? Mm -hmm. Why can't somebody just bring me a pizza or something? This is actually real Lita here. This is the first time we've been able to see her as such, aside from the gills. You know, I think this is maybe an interesting indication of what Morden really is, too, potentially. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he really is still Morden, but, mm-hmm. or whoever he used to be. Well, and I think the, it's interesting that dichotomy, too, because Morden was captured along with the rest of the Icarus, whereas in Lita sought out mm-hmm. the Vorlons. She went there, and as she said in this episode, she was basically on her last little bit of life support before somebody finally picked her up yeah so it's it's star trek generations all over again i was you thinking adventures in game morlons have to come to you oh let's not talk about the nexus the biggest fucking plot hole of all time yeah i'm gonna launch this torpedo that's gonna move faster than the speed of light to a sun and then the sun's energy is going to move faster than the speed of light to move this ribbon that i could just fly a shuttle into Okay. Will Lita continue to be a renegade telepath? Season season five. five. I mean, in general, though, too. I mean, I'm glad Nicole brought it up, and I said it already. Is this is a new a new tool that they have in their toolbox, and they will use it a lot. They will use her a lot. That she is now a rogue telepath. That they can. She doesn't have to follow the rules. She doesn't wear gloves. She can do what she wants. She can go Uh ahead and mess with people. When I made this point early on in the series when we were talking about Talia in season one, and I think part of the issue was they wrote themselves in a little bit of a corner with Talia being a commercial telepath. And and they already kind of stretched it a little bit when, oh, we needed to do that mind wipe in season one and 
we don't have a court telepath. So we're going to have this commercial telepath who's supposed to monitor business deals be the telepath to do it. You know, I think they wrote themselves into a bit of a pickle there where they had this clearly defined, you know, you are a commercial telepath. This is what you do. And trying to figure out how to get outside of that box. Whereas with Lita, that box just isn't there at all. Yeah, I had an observation about the fact that the Centauri telepath, the, the one weak part in the writing is that he was hired to do a job, which was to awaken uh, Edward to his past life, but also that he just decided to try to steal Edward's bag. And that's how he got caught and the whole thing <laughs> unraveled. Hey, man, you got to make a living somehow. Uh, you know, I, I guess. So moving on to the predictions, Justin's starting to go down a rabbit hole here. And actually, I will say in our chat, we have a group chat. And uh, earlier today, he said in Valen's name. So he is definitely on the Valen train. So I'm waiting to see how long it takes him to have to be gaslit again. But his prediction is Valen is a human or a Vorlon clone. And the Vorlons planted him much like they plant all of the visions of angels. He's, he's really into this Vorlon clone thing, and I think we need to push that. <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep him off track. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, as we've discussed so many times, Jeffrey Sinclair is Valen, and this is one of the major reasons why I'm pretty sure they're not going to be able to watch the animated movie when it comes out, because I think that's probably going to be referenced. I'm just going to guess. So, but uh, he's not a he's not a Vorlon clone. He actually wasn't created by the Vorlons. Uh, he was created by the Chrysalis, and the Chrysalis was created on Epsilon 3. So, I mean, you could maybe argue that the Vorlons have a hand in Epsilon 3. We don't know, but... I truly think Valen and the Vorlons are two separate things. Now, of course, when Valen goes back with B4, the Vorlons help him to kind of make himself known and to give him some credibility, but I don't think they're involved in making him, unless somebody knows something I don't. I don't think they're all making They were just there. Yeah, I mean, he, they were there to scare the bejesus out of the Mimbari into listening mm-hmm. to... Sinclair. I was trying to wrap my head around the fact that, you know, one 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 day this space station and this guy shows up in the Vorlons being Vorlons and thinking that they're all that or just kind of like, oh, hey. <laughs> What's up, dude? Oh, 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 hey, Jeff. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to War Without End parts one and two, which we've already said this before, but we are going to treat War Without End parts one and two as a one episode discussion. So when we get there, it's going to be a fun one. And then the other prediction is we have a second Vorlon using Lita as a suit. I keep thinking back to Men in Black with the Edgar suit, just walking yeah. around wanting sugar. We've kind of alluded to it in the episode, alluded to it. That's Kosh. He's now being able to leave the station without having his encounter suit. He's using Lita as his emissary and or suit, but it's not a different Vorlon. It's Kosh. Now, when Kosh 2.0 shows up and starts wanting to use Lita, that gets interesting. It is an interesting idea that he he might be able to see through her eyes or something like that, and then is kind of taking the information back. It definitely is a whole new look when Kosh 2.0 comes in and is even a bigger bastard than than the Vorlons are initially. Yeah, I mean, you can you can think about Kosh's motivation for doing this too, because on one hand, I guess you could look at it like it's a it being a change in his character or or symbolic of kosh wanting to maybe stray from the typical Vorlon path and he's he's actually now wanting a, a, to have the ability to explore and view things from a different angle that he wouldn't otherwise be able to where you know it seems like Vorlons probably haven't cared much about doing that in the past um 
yeah, the other side of it is that what in the hell does Kosh do in his room all day except watch his big screen? <laughs> so maybe he's just happy to get out now. Yeah, it does it does add to, you know, this Kosh is a little bit different than the rest of the Vorlons, which they do kind of, you know, hint at until they, they come out with it completely. But the the whole idea that that Kosh later on is going to, you know, give himself up for for Sheridan and then you know the the other guy they bring in is like I said an even bigger bastard. You know it it just it's, it's really clear how how different Kosh is from the rest of them. All right, with that, we'll go ahead and wind down. And next week we'll be talking about Voices of Authority, which, unlike the couple bottle episodes we've had, now is going to be a huge lore episode. So I'll be interested to see. And also, uh, we get some more discussion of first ones. So I'm sure the newbies will enjoy that. So until next week, be sure again to like, subscribe, follow, do all the things. And also, please, please, please leave a review. And as I mentioned, please join us in the comments and also on our Twitter and Facebook. I'm sure all of you listening have some thoughts on this episode as we did. And I really hope that you'll join us in the conversation. And until next week, I've been Scott. And with me has been Mike, Kevin, and Mike. See you soon. Bye-bye. Faith manages.